Our scripture this morning will be Acts chapter 2 and verses 43 through 47. I'll actually begin reading at verse 37, but our text for preaching will be 42 to 47. And as you turn there, you're going to hear as I read the scripture about the church. The church, which has just emerged from the womb, if you will, a vibrant church. It's just been birthed. And it's full of wonder at the new breath that it has in its lungs. It is overjoyed at the continual presence of her midwife, the Holy Spirit. And it is continually nourished by her bridegroom, who is Jesus Christ, who day by day feeds them and nourishes this new church by the word which he is giving day by day through the apostles. And you'll notice as I read these verses in a moment that their devotion to each other was exceeded only by their devotion to Jesus Christ. Day by day, the Spirit of God we will find adding to their number. We will see them leaving behind their old hearts of stone, following the leadings of their new heart of flesh. They worshiped, they gave, they testified in every way imaginable. We will find them becoming such bright and shining light that the glory of God in and among them was undeniable. And it was undeniable even among the watching, looking in unbelievers whose admiration, though probably a bit begrudging, was genuine. This is the church at its earliest. The church, many would say, at its its purest. So let us stand as we honor God's word. I will read Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. Now when they heard this, this of course being Peter's Pentecostal sermon, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And now for the text this morning, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless the reading. And now with his blessing, the proclamation of this word, please be seated. Now I want to ask you whether this church that I just read of to you, the church of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, commonly just called the Acts 2 church, does it sound to you like the ideal of an unreachable, of an unreachable ideal of a bygone age? Like something meant only for those simpler, those less hectic times, those times when men were more amenable to spirituality than we are today? Does it sound to you like that is the ideal church, but it's something that is past that we can no longer attain to, we can no longer have? 
Does that church sound like something that we should attain to? That we should desire? Now, if I took a poll asking you which church you would rather be, ours as it is today, or this one in Acts chapter 2, as it was then, well, most of you would vote for the latter, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you vote for that new, vibrant, pure, exciting church when everything was new and fresh and people were coming in and the joy and the enthusiasm of the Lord was so palpable and so obvious that even the cynics from outside had to look in and say, God is truly among this people. Wouldn't that be wonderful to have? Wouldn't you vote for that church if indeed we could vote? That pure, that lovely church before compromise set in. That pure and lovely church before the weeds came in among the tares. Church fresh, gleaming, gloriously new. Wouldn't that be a wonderful church to be? To model ourselves after and more than model after to actually become? Well, the scriptures here that I just read to you give us this model. They give us a model of what the church of Jesus Christ looked at, looked like when she emerged from Peter's spirit-filled sermon at the Pentecost. And I ask you again, what if we believe that the church could return to or could have this purity? What if we believe that? I mean, what if you really believe that? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. You believe that this scripture describes a church that is more than just an ideal of a bygone age, but a church that is possible today. What if you really believe that? What if you believe that enough to work for it, to fight for it? Would it be worth the effort? If I took a poll, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but if I did ask you to raise your hands and say, how many of you think if I could develop for you the idea that this church is attainable, not just something from 2,000 years ago, and we just gloss it over as historical record, an anachronism, but something we could indeed do and possibly should do. And I ask you to raise your hands if you're willing to work, even to strain, to sacrifice, to fight, to be such a church. How many of you would raise your hands and say, I'm in? Well, I think we all would. What was the great characteristic of this church in Acts chapter 2? There are many answers to a question like that. But the answer I'm going to give, and I'm not going to go and give you an analysis of other answers that are out there and possible. I'm saying nothing for or against them. But here's the answer I want us to focus on this morning. The character of this Acts chapter 2 church was unity. It was unity that made them so unique in that day. It was unity that caused them to be this light shining on a hill, giving glory to God so that all the world would look and see that light on the hill. And as it says that they had favor with all the people, people had they had favor with the people. Why? Because they saw God's glory in what? in their unity, in their coming together, in their practice of worshiping together as a body and calling out the praises of Jesus Christ, their Savior. The character of this church was unity. The gospel of peace, which God brings, brings unity to men. We have unity because Jesus Christ won it for us and he gave it to us. And you need to appreciate our unity as a God-given gift. It is something worth having. It is something worth striving for. It is something worth constantly improving. 
And I would argue in Acts chapter 2, this ideal church, this pure church, this church before the compromises set in, is a church that was characterized primarily by this God-given unity. Well, I want us to appreciate it this morning. I want us to appreciate it enough that when I say amen at the end of this message, we're all together, we're all saying, you know, this is something worth striving for, something worth straining for, something worth working for, and something worth maybe even fighting for. I want us to appreciate it. I want us to appreciate what this church in Acts chapter 2 really was. And what it says about what the church today can be. How do we do this? How do we appreciate it? Well, first I'm going to come off the text a bit. And I'm going to take us way back in history because I want you to understand what it is that the church represents in so many ways. And I'm only going to pick one of those many ways. It's a manifold church. There are many things we could talk about. This one I want to bring us back to is Genesis 11. We'll go back there, and there we're going to see one of the major acts of God's judgments that in the church is finally resolved. And we need this because if the prevailing characteristic of the church is our unity, then Genesis 11, Genesis 11 explains why this can only be brought about by God. That's first. And then we're going to appreciate this simply by going through these verses and understanding the original pattern of the church. What does the divine text tell us about this church? How is it described? And what can we extract from that? And that will take us back to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, which is our text, where the church is described along with the reaction of the watching world. And third and finally, and perhaps most importantly, and not absent from any of the other preaching, but what we will focus third on and last upon from these same verses is our total reliance upon God's Holy Spirit to accomplish anything of any value, any value in His eyes. So Genesis 11, so we understand what is actually being reversed in the church. Then we will go through our, verse, our verses point by point to see what they tell us, how it describes the church to us, and then we will close by looking at God's Holy Spirit. It's the only way we can do anything of any eternal value. So only God brings true unity to the church. If we enjoy any unity at all, we have to accept it as a divine gift of God. Only God can do this. And if we ask why, if the question is, why can only God do this? Don't men come together for all kinds of things? We're talking about true unity. We're talking about unity that God is pleased with, and only He can bring this about. And that's because God is the reason that man became disunified in the first place. It is God who decreed that men should part company with each other. It is God who decreed it, therefore only God can abrogate His decree and bring men back together. The church's unity is a reversal of one of the major judgments that God ever made. And for this you can turn to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis 11, I'll read verses 1 through 9. This is very familiar to many of us. This is a story of Babel. This is where men came together for one purpose. God saw it and disperses them. Let's read these verses. Beginning of verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Maybe she's saying we could stop for even a moment. They are afraid of being dispersed throughout the whole earth, but after the flood in Genesis 9, God said, repeating what he had told Adam and Eve, really, go be dispersed, go fill the earth. They say, no, we're going to stay here. We want to stay here together. We're all speaking the same words. We're all speaking the same language. We like it here. And the Lord God came down to see the city, this is verse 5, and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. You know, in chapter 2, verse 39 of Acts, in Peter's Pentecostal sermon towards the end of it, which we read a moment ago, he says, For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, now, what does he mean by the promise? Well, the immediate answer to what he meant by the promise was the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, these people had seen the Holy Spirit, the tongues, the divided tongues as a fire. They had heard the rushing wind. They heard Peter preaching in languages so that they all understood the unifying language of the gospel. And the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit, he referred back to the prophet Joel and some others is the immediate answer to what's the promise? That you, by faith in Christ Jesus, will receive the Holy Spirit. But then he adds something, and this is what I want to focus in on here for just a few moments. He adds that the promise is for all who are afar off. All who are far off. Far from where? Well, from each other would be a first answer. But why are they far off? Why do they have to be brought from anywhere to come back together as a people? And the answer is, and we just read it from Genesis 11, because God had dispersed them. Because God had broken them up. Because God had disunified them. Now the Jews hearing Peter, their first thought to far off would have meant the Jews dispersed throughout the world after the Babylonian exile of 586 B.C., about 600 years before his sermon. And so they would hear that. The promise is for you and all who are far off. They would say, well, you mean my cousin Joe who's in Macedonia. You mean my uncle Frank who's in Greece and so forth because the Jews had been dispersed throughout the land some 600 years before. And that answer, in a sense, would have been correct, but only in a limited sense. Because what is the gospel? Is the gospel only for the Jews? Well, it's for the Jew first, but also for the Greek In Acts chapter 8, the gospel goes out to Samaria. So it goes away from Jerusalem and expands into Samaria. And soon thereafter, it goes to Ethiopia through Candace's servant, that Ethiopian eunuch. And in Acts chapter 10, the, the gospel goes to the Gentiles when Peter goes to the 
Roman centurion Cornelius and brings the gospel to him and his household is, is converted. And on it goes and expands and grows and goes until all the world hears the gospel, the unifying language of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church brings it to its fold, men and women and children from different peoples and different lands and different tribes and tongues. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, it says that the gospel goes to every nation and tribe and language and people. And Jesus said the same thing when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all Jewish dispersed peoples. No, of all nations. Every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. So it's far beyond just the dispersed Jews, what we call the diaspora. It includes them, but it goes so far beyond. It is all humanity, and this is why we started with Genesis 11, to appreciate what has come together here. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, as Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, as far as I know, there's only one person in this church who was born of Jewish blood and raised that way, and that's me. But our coming together, our mutual love and care for each other because of our faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of this reversal. That's not just for the Jew, it's for everyone. It's for anyone who will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and put their faith and their trust in Him. You see, the judgment of God at Babel was reversed at Pentecost. There's only one truly unifying language, and that is the gospel, and is reversed there when the church is birthed by Peter's sermon there at Pentecost. When God came down and he saw men striving together, unified in their purpose to be his equal, he drove them away. He drove them away from each other. Centuries later, God came down again. But God came down in the person of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. When God came down and he saw men striving to be like God, he broke them apart. He gave them different languages. He says, you're going to speak this and you're going to speak that. And soon men went to gather together with those who spoke the same words. And then they drew up their borders against others who spoke different words and became enemies with each other, which is far better than being enemies of God. But this is what is reversed in the gospel. And the fulfillment of that reversal is here in this church in Acts chapter 2 and is here in this church today 20 centuries later. God still by His Spirit, by the unifying language of the gospel of His forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, is drawing men back from Babel and to His Son. So the church that Jesus founded and is still building is the place where God can truly and rightly be worshipped by people who come from every background. Babel being completely reversed by what we have here. Only here is Babel reversed. Only here in Christ is true unity found. Unity founded on one Lord who is Jesus Christ, on one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Only here do men and women worship in spirit and truth. Only the church of Jesus Christ, populated by we who are called from far off, only here is that good and pleasant dwelling together that pleases God and brings honor to His Son, Jesus.
So do you see that here at this church? Do you see this kind of beautiful, pure, loving, Christ-honoring unity? Perhaps like they had in Acts chapter 2 when the church was first born? Well, it's here. It may be, be a bit hidden, especially compared to the beautiful picture we have of the Acts 2 church, but it is here. Our unity may be a pen light piercing through a thick fog, but it's still there. And it's here because it's not something we accomplished. It's not something I can give to you. Neither can Pastor Owens. It's not something you can bring. It's something that Christ has accomplished. It's a great gift. One to be cherished. One to be nurtured. One to be grown. Not something we did. Jesus did it by the cross. Unity is something we have. We just need to uncover it. We just need to bring back and buff up the, what we have so it lusters, so it shines the way it did in Acts chapter 2. If Acts chapter 2 is indeed something that you would have raised your hand and say, yes, I vote for that, let's do that. You know, many years ago when my dad was a few days away from passing away, I was cleaning the garage. We turned around on vacation. We were out in Yellowstone. Called my mother. She said, you better come. So we came. My dad had about a week left. And one of the things I did just to keep busy when I was there was cleaned up this garage. My dad was not known for having nice tools, just a lot of tools. He bought lousy tools, honestly. He bought them at flea markets, not because he was cheap, but because he liked talking to people. And he would just buy the stuff. And all the sockets were rounded, and they couldn't grab any nuts. And his screwdrivers were always chipped, and they couldn't turn any screws. And so I'm just tossing this stuff and tossing this stuff. And I'm weeping because I know my dad's going to pass pretty soon. And while I'm doing this, I found on the floor of all things, a two-bladed, shrayed Uncle Henry knife of four-inch blades. And I'm about ready to toss it right away because it's my dad's tool, and he bought it at a flea market, so I know it's not going to be worth keeping. But well, I kind of like knives, so I stopped and I opened it. A little hard to open the blade, but it opened. And it was a little pitted, a little rusted. The emblem on the handle, you couldn't quite see shrayed on it or Uncle Henry. And honestly, you could have given it to a child to play with without any loss of conscience because it wasn't going to do anybody any harm. But I kept it, and I have it now, and I buffed it up, and I cleaned it up, and I got all the pits off of it, and it's been many hours meeting Mr. Arkansas Sharpening Stone. But the point is, when I first picked it up, it was still a knife. It couldn't function the way a knife is supposed to function quite, but it was still a knife. And I tell you this morning that this church today, even if we don't have a luster, gleaming unity like that church of Acts 2, which we so pine for so often, we're still a church. We are a proper church. And a church that with the hard work, with getting the blade onto the Arkansas stone and putting the right oil on working and working with patience and diligence, can give Christ Jesus all the more glory and be all the more like this church in Acts chapter 2. And the first way we begin to restore that luster is to appreciate where our unity came from. It came all the way back from Babel in Genesis chapter 11 when God dispersed men 
because of their unity together to insult him really to be like him and in the gospel brings us back together all these nations all these people who he dispersed he now by faith in his son Jesus Christ brings back and this is the way we work that old knife and get it functioning the way it should like the Acts chapter 2 church so again to our passage to Acts chapter 2 now that we've covered Genesis 11 and seen God bring back together whom he had dispersed I want to read the whole passage again from verse 42 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved so what do we have here in this description of the first iteration of the church the church when it was first born some read this and conclude something like this that the church therefore must meet in homes how do we get back to being that Acts chapter 2 church why we meet in homes because in verse 46 they met in their homes but brethren this is narrative and describes what took place now biblical narrative can carry doctrine but it doesn't usually usually it simply tells us what happened and that's here in Acts chapter 2 telling us what happened telling us what things were like but that said the language here does lend itself to seeing a model for the church not a model of where they met but how they met not a model of the place they went to the homes but the spirit that they brought with them when they went it's a pattern for that very primitive church and we're going to have the unity described here in Acts chapter 2 the unity that pleases God the unity intended by God in Christ's cross we need to see something that they had in their church life they were consistent they were consistent in their worship of God they were consistent in their fellowship together they were consistent in their unity now how do we say that we say that because the verbs that Luke uses here are what we call imperfects it doesn't mean that they're bad verbs or that they're less good than any other verb it means it denotes an action that doesn't come to an end it denotes a past action this is history that doesn't come to an end it's continual it's their practice it's their habit to do these things verse 42 they devoted that's your first imperfect consistently habitually constantly devoted themselves to something to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers so what do we have here out of contagious love for Christ out of joy and salvation that he gave them they just couldn't get enough they were there because they loved the Lord and knew him to be present where his people gathered and worshiped as Jesus said where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them now a friend of mine had an ex pastor as a member of his church who would preach fairly often for him and it seemed wherever this gentleman was and I liked him a lot but wherever he was in scripture he had a single application therefore you better not miss a church meeting 
Now he could be preaching about Aaron's robes, Genesis 1-1, or he could be in one of the doctrinal sections of Romans, and he would always seem to come around with this application. He had this way of waving his finger. Therefore, you better not miss any of the church's meetings. Now how that derived from such a variety of biblical passages is beyond our scope this morning, and I love this man. But sometimes people seem so dull to the things of the Lord, which are taught and encouraged in the meetings of the church. Sometimes people seem so inured to them that a pastor just becomes desperate to find ways to get people there. Now I'm not going to bark out some legalistic order to you. I mean, our church covenant does speak of attending the meetings of the church. And if Peter did tell them something like to not forsake the gathering of the saints, our careful historian, Luke, didn't record it. He lets something else permeate this record. It's the sweet-smelling aroma of brethren who worship together out of unrestrained joy in the Lord. Not the exciting music, not the awe-inspiring preaching, not bright lights or cute children's skits, but conversion to Christ, which brings an unquenchable thirst to know Him more and to be with like-minded people. This is what is happening here. This is why they devoted themselves to this teaching, devoted themselves constantly to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, to the prayers. After those imperfect verbs and this continual practice, there's something else here we need to see, and that's all the thes. How many times the word the comes up here? You see, they weren't attending some amorphous organization that had no purpose. They devoted themselves to certain things. That they devoted themselves, that imperfect verb, that constancy, relates to these things. The apostles' teaching, emphasis mine, what we would today call the scriptures. The fellowship, not some casual or ad hoc gathering, but the fellowship created by the word of God attended by the Spirit's power. The breaking of the bread. Now by the article, by the word the, Luke is making it clear he means something other than sandwiches and, and, and soda. He means the Lord's table, the breaking of the bread. Something celebrated even then. And the prayers, again, prayers offered up by the assembled church. Very specific, very definite things. This was their consistent and continual habit and practice. You know, human organizations tend to lose their direction over time. The initial enthusiasm for the fresh vision that first carried them along sort of wanes. The Boy Scouts lasted a long time before, before this happened to them, but it did recently happen. And recent compromises came about from, from this loss of vision, and now they're practically defunct. And we can think of many other organizations that have had this thing happen to them. Where they start out with all this energy and all this direction, and people are all excited. And soon, the succeeding generation says, oh, if only you had been there then. Because that was when it was really cool. That was when it was really exciting. The church is. The church should be. The church must be different from that. See, we're an organization like others. We're populated by people like others. But that's where the similarity ends. Listen, verse 43 says, And awe came, and again, an imperfect verb, came constantly, regularly, 
came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done again constantly through the apostles. What does that tell us about the church? The church is a place of awe because here the wonder of God's presence is experienced. It's a place of awe. It's an overused word today. Oh, that's awesome. And we hear it so much that awesome doesn't mean awesome anymore. It means mundane and regular, and everybody's got to be awesome. But here, everybody's filled with awe, as the word really means. Amazement and reverence for God. They were continually awestruck. The signs and wonders of the apostles are of a time gone by, and I'm going to let it rest there. They authenticated the apostles as God's, the Lord's true emissaries. They were necessary then in a way that they are not today. How did the unity come about? Well, God gave it to them by reversing Babel. What was one of the characteristics of the unity? They were filled with awe together. I think sometimes we hold our reverence to God hostage to His doing something to impress us. I mean, pastors do feel this pressure, and it leads to disaster quite often as the pastor will distance himself from the apostles' teaching, from the Word of God, and end up somewhere that they never foresaw or intended, entertaining rather than worshiping. And this is when you get preachers just trying to get people excited about being in church and starting out with a good heart and then compromising on the Word of God. And next thing you know, he's just a shuckster or a jokester trying to entertain, trying to be excited because of his own personage. Starting out well, because I want you to feel the awe of being in God's presence. And I don't sense that you have it. I'm not speaking for me in relation to you. My mythical pastor, my hypothetical pastor, who then goes down this road of compromise in order to gain the awe. Where does awe come from? Well, it comes from faith in Jesus Christ. It comes from appreciating what He on the cross did to save you. But where does all come in to the church? You know, Psalm 22, verse 23 says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. Do you fear the Lord? Praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, we say children of Abraham, true children of Abraham by faith in Jesus, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, all you people of faith, all you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, stand in awe of Him. Malachi 2.5 speaks of how Israel once stood in awe of God's name. How does it wane and fade away? If you ever knew this kind of awe and reverence for God, how does it, how does it fade away? Like that knife sitting on the floor in Dad's garage slowly getting a patina of rust and pits in the blades. I think of the gravediggers in Hamlet. They're singing those happy tunes during their sad task. And like them, we just sort of get used to things. You forget the joy of your salvation. You forget the wonder you knew when God first opened your eyes to salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's like, ho-hum, another Sunday, here we go. La-di-da, another meeting of the saints, let's do it, yawn. Just another morning in the presence of God, worshiping His Son, Jesus, in the power of His Spirit. Nice, comfortable, mundane routine. We forget what a wonderful thing it is to be friends of God by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Where does it all come from? 
This awe that filled this church, they were continually filled with awe. It comes from you. It's really your job to be filled with awe. Not because of me, not because of Pastor Owens, not because of the music being exciting or the building being glamorous, but because Jesus Christ is here by His Spirit. You need to bring the awe with you. Not something we give you when you arrive on Sunday, like when we check your temperature and see if you can come in. We have a little scan, say, oh, you have awe, come on in. No, you got to go home, pick up your awe and bring it back with you. No, it's not something we give you. It's something you add. Awe-filled Christians make for an awe-inspiring church. A unified church. Verses 44 and 45 tell us that their reverence for God led to their devotion to each other. As I said to the beginning, the only thing that exceeded their devotion and love for each other was their devotion and love for Jesus Christ. And their devotion and love for Jesus Christ led to their devotion and love for each other. So it's this expanding circle. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Again, imperfect verbs, this continual practice. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many as had need. Now, it may have been in Peter's many other words, but Luke doesn't tell us exactly why they held all things in common. So we can engage in just a little bit of speculation, and I would say that speculation is easily answered. The Holy Spirit is the reason they held all things in common. It was He who first showed Himself in the tongues as a fire and that mighty rushing wind that caught their attention. He, the Holy Spirit, who loosened Peter's tongue and brought a new unity among men by reversing their confounded language into the gospel of peace with God by faith in Christ. See, at one time men united against God, and here they unite in God. Where men once stood for their own good, here they're concerned with each other's good. Here they follow in the Savior's footsteps, and they look out not only for their own interests, but the interests of others. The Philippians would be told this in chapter 2, verse 4 of Paul's letter to them. Here it was a spontaneous outburst of their joy in the Lord and their common salvation in Christ Jesus. This is where the unity came from. Joy in the Lord and coming together in common reverence for God. All were filled with awe which is something you bring, if indeed you have this awe for God in Christ Jesus. Do you know Christ? He is awe-inspiring. By faith in Christ, do you know His Father, God the Father? Because an awesome thing He did in sending His Son, God the Son, the Eternal Son, who never was not, and sending Him, the perfect and sinless and spotless Lamb of God, to walk this earth in the form of sinful flesh and to be like us. Is that not awe-inspiring? Does that not give you a reverence that should attach to the other reverences within this place and the other believers who feel the same way about the Lord Jesus Christ? And should it not circle up into this great worship of God and this unity of heart we have together as we worship the one true and living God in this way? And finally, this unity has to extend beyond the confines of the church. And day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
Now, the meetings in verse 42 were formal and purposeful. This is informal. This is not the breaking of the bread. This is just breaking bread together. Having a meal together is simple hospitality. It's the desire for the company of fellow believers for the sake of the company of fellow believers. And there's something very important here in the order of things. That they were, they, they were seen in the temple. They wouldn't go on for long. They, the, the, the temple would sh soon be destroyed in 70 AD. The distinctions that the Christians had over and against the Jewish religion would soon separate them from the old traditions. But Luke adds here, then how they met in their homes with glad and generous hearts. So breaking bread here is simply having meals together. No specifying the bread. What does this mean? Again, it's about the unity that God gives us. It's about the simple desire to simply be with like-minded people who have the same awe and reverence for God. And this is how the church brushes off that little layer of rust, shines up the blades, sharpens up the edges, and becomes more bright and more gleaming. This is what the world looks at and sees. Men and women from all languages and tribes and tongues and economic places and all the different differences that God brings together in His Son, Jesus Christ. And Luke is very clear here is that as they were seen attending in the temple, something that would soon have to end, but for then they were seen doing it, breaking bread in their homes, so they are seen going together and having this fellowship together, a unique and a different thing. What is this new religion you're bringing about here, they might have asked. Why is it you're meeting like this with such joy and such glad, generous hearts? It's because of God. It's because of God and the looking world sees in and they had favor with all people. I would argue it would be grudging favor. Like, oh boy, you know, they're not quite like the rest of us, but you know, these people really believe what they're doing. These people really do what they say they're going to do. After all of that is when Luke writes about the favor they had with everyone. So why would this watching world admire them for what they were doing? Well, Luke doesn't tell us exactly, but we know from the Gospels that the religious leaders lorded it over the people. As Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25. In John chapter 9, verse 34, the religious leaders cast out a man for his audacity in defending Jesus using the scriptures to make his case. In John chapter 7, verse 49, the religious leaders call the people accursed. And now here they see this group of Jews, the first converts being all Jews, not yet broken away from the temple, having open and joyful communion together. They're devoid of class distinctions. Did they have a leader? They had Peter, the apostle. Was he the priest over them? No, he was one of them. He was simply the pastor, not lording it over them in any way. This is what they were seeing. Their pastors were the apostles, who far from being over and above them, knew that they too were sinners in need of grace. And this seems to be what gave them favor with all around. This is at least one way they were a light on a hill that caused men to give God the glory. This is the fruit of true unity. These days this sort of fellowship is difficult to engage for obvious reasons. We have the pandemic. We cannot come together as close physically as we'd like to. I can't tell you how much I miss our weekly fellowship meals. And many of you told me the same. But even so, we can trust God that our praises will cause men to praise Him as by our gathering here together we show the power of Christ to unify a people. 
And by our gathering together the way we do here, safely, God willing, we show the world out there that this is important. That our reverence for God brings us together. That our unity together is something that we cherish. Not because we're all so grand, though I think some of you are pretty grand, but because we have a unity, we have a worship, we have a God, we have a Savior to worship, and it means something to us. In these fractious times when a single misplaced word can destroy an entire career, where personal identity is practically worshipped, where diversity is extolled but diverse opinions are squelched, the Church of Jesus Christ does and must stand apart and distinct. Because we are apart and distinct, and we have something that no other organization has, which is unity with each other by our unity in the Spirit. The people in Acts 2 had favor with all the people. And more important, they had favor with God. Verse 47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church had favor with all men because they saw their beliefs being in, impacting the way that they lived. The church was so unified that every door was open and these believers, once estranged by Babel, were now brothers and sisters in Christ and all this God used to add to them day by day all whom he, the Lord, called and calls to himself. You know, when I first found that shred, it was so dull it was harmless. Like I said, you could have given it to a child. But it was still a knife. It didn't function much like a knife. It was dull. It was dull to look at. It was dull to touch. But elbow grease, the Arkansas sharpening stones, WD-40, some super fine steel wool, and hours of work, and I've got a shiny, clean knife with gleaming blades, and you can do that dry shave thing. You ever see guys do that? Yeah, it can dry shave. I've got blank spots here. Can we be more like the church in Acts chapter 2? I ask you, should we try to be more like the church in Acts chapter 2? Should we work on that the way I worked on that old knife? Should we be like the church that attended itself to the apostolic teaching? A church that was anxious to put everything into practice? The church that was filled with all filled believers? The same word that Peter preached then is the word that I and Pastor Owens preach to you today. The same Holy Spirit who brought that church into being brought this church into being. And that same Holy Spirit who draws men to himself into the church is working today as he did then for Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you want the Acts 2 church? Do you want that purity? Do you want to be that gleaming light on a hill that men can see and even if, even if it's begrudging, have to admit that God is truly among this people and give Him the glory. Unless it's a different Word of God, unless it is a different Holy Spirit among us than it was then, these things are not only desirable, they're possible. Are you willing to work for that? Are you willing to strain for that with us? Our sharpening stone is the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit is using it to smooth out our pits and our burrs. God willing, as we meet with awe and reverence, as you bring your awe and reverence into us, united in Christ Jesus our Lord, we will show forth his glories and God will be pleased to add to us in number 
and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and in our unity. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the day that you've given us, for allowing us again to meet here in this place and to have your word always before us. I pray, Father, you would conform us to the image of your son Jesus, that you would form this church to be the church that would please you the most and all things receive all the glory and the praise, the reverence and the awe from us. In Jesus' name, amen.